Welcome to the Frontline Conversations podcast, a platform that discusses issues around public policy and current affairs. We can't wait to share insights that matter to you. Are you ready to have the conversation? This is Frontline Conversations. Good morning, good day, good evening, depending on where you are and what time you are watching this podcast. Welcome to Frontline Conversations. Um, this is hosted by Frontline Africa Advisory based in Pretoria. We're a public policy advisory firm discussing issues related to public policy, government donations, and so forth. Today, we are excited to host a very special guest from the IMF. Today, we're joined by Mr. Max Alia, who is the IMF representative for South Africa. And we have invited him here to discuss a couple of issues that are linked to South Africa, the economic situation, perhaps touch on the future. Uh, but we're thrilled to be joined by you, Mr. Max Alia, um, to just share a couple of insights linked to economic issues. So I'd like to also welcome you, give you an opportunity to also uh, greet the guests and the listeners at home, if you if you wish. <laughs> Hey, Earl, thank you very much for inviting me to be here with you today. Yes. And of course, very pleased to talk to all the people who are watching this uh, podcast. And um, I think these are great opportunities to exchange views and to hopefully uh, help into the ongoing debate in South Africa about the challenges the country faces. Definitely, definitely. Um, I think just to start off, um, I'd like to first touch on the issue of COVID-19. Um, undoubtedly, it's had a devastating impact on economies, countries all over. And South Africa is obviously not an exception. Um, I mean, a lot of people have even posed that even before COVID-19 hit our shores, we were already faced with so many economic challenges, so many social challenges. And this current situation has only made things worse, you know. Um, so I just want to get your views around COVID-19 and... I guess more specifically what government has put on the table as concrete plans to help the country recover and get on its own uh, recovery path. So then you have the Economic Reconstruction Recovery Plan, that's the ERIP, then you also have Operation Venezuela, uh, both um, launched in 2020. So I just want to get your views on both of those plans and any other current plans that you would want to bring into the conversation. How efficient, in your view, do you think both of those plans will be in you know, setting the country on its recovery path? Great. Uh, yeah, I think on, on COVID-19, uh, of course, the world has been devastating to many countries in the world. Um, I mean, it's obviously one of the human, the, the worst parts. I mean, the, how many millions of lives were lost. Mm -hmm. But uh, in addition to that sad element is how much livelihoods were impacted around the world because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there were countries who were in a better position to face the pandemic and therefore put in place measures to mitigate the impact on the population. Uh, South Africa had some space to do that and some measures were put in place. And I believe, I mean, we believe that they did certainly have a positive impact in the sense of mitigating. It could have been much, much worse in the absence of those measures. Um, but perhaps, and as bad as that, that was, I think the, what is really important is what you have pointed out, which is already before COVID, South Africa was facing immense economic challenges. Um, South Africa was tra in a low growth trap. Mm. You know, in a country where income per capita had been 
declining for six years in a row. This is before COVID. Um, and this is a very difficult situation because in a situation when, where you have income per capita declining, it's not that you have difficulties fighting poverty and inequality. It's that you are going backwards. You cannot even preserve the status quo. And that's why South Africa found itself with relatively high levels of poverty and a, an inequality that is among the highest in the world. So those challenges were in place already before COVID. So the starting position was already a difficult yeah. one. Um, it has already somewhat been complicated, I believe, for by a number of factors. Um, and we can discuss that in, in more depth if you want, but it's, you know, the, the roots of this economic stagnation that South Africa was suffering um, is it's been because of what we call it structural constraints. So it's on the supply side of the economy. Um, the government during those years actually had acted as if it was a demand problem. It was not a problem with the supply of the economy producing. Yeah. It was more like the old theory. What we need is to spend to pull the economy out. Oh but when you have a structural constraints, if you spend, you're not going to generate growth. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Fiscal policy was relatively loose, what we call loose. Uh, deficits increased. But more importantly, at the end of the day, say, by, by before the pandemic at that point, the country had not only not grown, but public debt has piled up quite significantly. Because the economy is not responsive, but you run deficits and deficits, and the economy is not responding. So I think that a clear lesson from that period is almost textbook case in which the constraints to growth were coming again from the structural rigidities in the economy. This was also compounded during that period for the episode of state capture. Mm -hmm. And we can also talk about that, you know, but it's, it's clear that um, uh, there's a negative correlation or a negative relation between corruption and growth. And, but not in South Africa, this is generally in everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, so having that in mind, I mean, having this, I think in South Africa as a country, it, there's a great advantage in South Africa, especially compared to many countries in the region, there's a lot of capacity in South Africa. And I think there's a relatively good understanding now, mm -hmm. by and large, of what the reasons are for this stagnation or for this low growth. Um, and there are a number of plans in place, including the e ERP, yeah. which are, you know, by and large, rightly focused on what needs to be done. There are some proposals in there mean, that we don't like. Okay? like issues around localization and this kind of thing. But I say the bulk of the diagnostic and the bulk of the policies or, or plans that are put in, that are recommended, I think they're in the right direction. Yeah. So, so that's what the ERP kind of does. The main problem in South Africa has become uh, almost uh, uh, you know, endemic is implementation. The so you know, there's a, <laughs> there is a plan pretty much for everything. Yeah. But they rarely leave the paper. Mm. So that's a little bit the big issue, and that's that's what Operation Bulinlela is actually trying to address. Yeah. The um, Operation Bulinlela is this partnership or this operation between the government and the presidency. Yeah. 
which are basically trying to address those issues that hold back the implementation of reforms. Uh, and they have, have, have some successes, but I think the it's a, it's a learning process, obviously. Um, but you you can see that uh, they, they have an achievement, but then there's so much resistance to some of the reforms mm -hmm. that then the system kind of hold it back. I mean, I think one example, uh, I think a very good example is, um, you may remember in May of last year, um, the president raised the, the, the limit for independent energy producers yes, yes, from yes. one megawatt to 100 megawatts. Yeah. That was more than anyone expected. It has been a long fight for a long, long time. And we can talk about energy separately, but it was a long fight. And most optimistic people said it was going to go up to 10 megawatts to 50 megawatts. And they surprised with a positive thing that they will allow up to 100 megawatts. Uh, but no, we're here today, and I don't think a single megawatt has made it to the grid yet. Because you passed the decree, but then you have different agencies throwing sand at the wheels. Mm -hmm. Because you put more constraints and things don't get implemented. Yeah. So I think the the, uh, the decree for 100 megawatts was a big, uh, good success for Operation Bullying Lela in the yes, sense that they moved yes. that. But then you fight all the things. So you, you need to keep fighting you know, mm -hmm. all the groups who are holding bank reforms. Yes, getting that consensus yeah, exactly. and getting everyone on the table to, yeah. to play their part, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's a, uh, and also, you know, and what holds back reforms, uh, uh, well, in, in many countries, I would say, not only in South Africa, I think in general there are a number of things. Obviously, in some cases, it's a, a simple corruption, people who benefit in a corrupt way from the system. There's also ideological things. I mean, some people believe in different, you know, you have always a debate, for example, should, it, should the private sector have a bigger or smaller participation? Should it be the state? Should it be the private sector? So there's some people with very strong views on this, and they will defend their views and those things. Um, do you, do you also have the issue of um, uh, winners and losers? You know, whenever you do a reform, you have winners and you have some losers. But uh, so usually you find the, the winners is usually the population at large. Mm -hmm. But the population at large is not organized. And sometimes the losers, or usually the losers, are vested interest. Mm -hmm. And these are small groups, but they're very well organized. Mm -hmm. So because they're losers and they're organized, they manage to hold back reforms because those who will benefit, which is the population at large, are not really organized and don't manage to put the same kind of pressure. Yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing that you need to address. And then in some instances, I believe, is the issue of capacity. And I think in general, South Africa is a country, certainly for this region, with one of the highest level of capacity. Mm -hmm. But it's it not, it, it not important to rest on your laurels and say, because we do better than our neighbors. No, but the, Capacity is very important, in not only to to think the big policy reform that you need to do, but you when you reform a, do a policy, it has to go all down the line. Because you have a lot of levels of people who will need to implement it and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and read from the same page. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think these main issues are what really tend to hold back reforms everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you need to look at them. You, obviously, the political elements are more difficult to tackle, mm -hmm. and they need to be tackled by politicians. But sometimes it's administrative stuff, things so don't get done, so you mm -hmm. so you can improve processes. Mm -hmm. By the way, I think, uh, as I said, so going back to the, your main question, I think the ERP is a plan, I think, that by and large identified the problems adequately. It proposes a number of reforms and solutions and plans, which I think by and large and broadly speaking 
in the right direction. Some of them we may not agree, but India. But the main challenge is implementation in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And that's what the government is trying to tackle with Operation Police Lena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully there are some successes as we go on on that front. Indeed. But I guess the biggest takeaway for me here is, broadly speaking, in our thinking around the issue and what should happen, mm -hmm. we're on the right path, on the right direction. But there are certain challenges where implementation is concerned. And I mean, that's a function of so many different um, issues that we find prevalent in, in South Africa. Um, so yeah, I think moving on from there, another challenge um, is the challenge of investment, you know, investment promotion in South Africa. I know that the president has, your he has launched this investment drive, done so much to ensure that we bring the money, bring the investment into the country. But I know that from this year, I think the IMF then said that, okay, there are certain challenges, there are certain um, impediments, if I may, to increasing investments in the country. So I'd like for you to perhaps touch on that, uh, challenges that the country has, uh, where investment is concerned, what some of those are, and what can be done by the country to overcome some of those challenges to make sure that we bring in that investments into the country. Yeah, uh, sure, absolutely. And I, again, uh, this is kind of the right point. Um, I think you try, you trace back mm -hmm. why South Africa hasn't been growing fast mm -hmm. for the number of years. You trace it back to the low level of private investment. Both, I mean, it's both is low level of total investment to begin with, and in particular, low level of private investment. You know, private investment have been hovering around 10% of GDP. Mm -hmm. And actually in the last couple of years being below 10% of GDP. This is extremely low, extremely, extremely low. On the other hand, the government, because they have a very large level of debt, more and more they have a more limited space to do public investment. Mm -hmm. And exactly because of this limited fiscal space, this limited possibility for the government to invest, that's why you really need to create conditions for the private investment to take mm -hmm. a bigger role and grow faster and you know and provide this this uh, this momentum mm -hmm. to grow but you need to create the conditions because for private investors to come and effectively invest yeah. um, we see two big areas that I have been called impact South Africa uh, and I will separate one is the products market mm -hmm. and the other one is the labor market mm -hmm. uh, on the products market, um, one big theme, I would call it a big overall thing, is what I would say is the very large footprint of state-owned enterprises on the economy. These are highly inefficient, in some cases ineffective, mm -hmm. and I will go into the difference between them. Okay. And they also represent a very heavy burden on the budget because they require significant support from the budget to keep running their operations and the difference between efficiency and effectiveness is you know effective is that you manage to achieve your objective okay. and efficient is that you manage to achieve your objective at the lowest possible cost okay okay so what you find in many places in the world you have inefficiency so you have let's say a company that you know, produces energy uh, but it's very expensive energy but that's an effective company they, but they produce energy Mm -hmm. But it's not efficient because it's very, very expensive. It's a very high cost. Mm -hmm. Now, I think what you have in the case of Vescom is not even in efficiency. You have ineffectiveness. Mm -hmm. You have low shedding. There's mm -hmm. moments where there's no energy. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. that the energy is only expensive. In, in, in the, in the energy is expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that is simply not even available. Yeah. 
So you know, it's a it's, it's a it's a it's a deeper problem. Yeah. So um, so going back to this life footprint of the public enterprises mm-hmm. on the on the economy and the consequences. And one is obviously the one I was hinting now, which we believe is absolutely the elephant in the room, is I will not even focus on the company, we'll call it more broadly, is energy security. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way any country can grow fast and sustained in the absence of energy security. And also when you, you people and companies may resort to alternatives but your industry will never be competitive using generators. Now, energy from generators is very expensive. Of course, if you don't have energy from the public grid at a reasonable cost, you end up using generators. But then you are not competitive. Your your products are not competitive in international markets. And this transmits. So so energy security needs to be addressed. This is absolutely fundamental. Uh, Obviously, in this context, Mm, it's difficult to talk about energy in South Africa and not talk about ESCOM. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, but I it's, it, it, sometimes it's important not to get so much back in the company, but on the big issue. The big yeah, issue yeah. is energy security. And here what we believe is very important is really this field needs to be open to more private sector participation. Um, of course, you, as you know, in the energy market, you have three levels. You have generation, transmission, and distribution. Yes. But at least start on the generation part. And especially now that South Africa is getting into this uh, climate change and the energy transition that is need to be done. Uh, well, then you, you need to create conditions for private gener- people, to, for companies to come and generate and put the energy in the grid. But as I was saying before, you had these issues, you know, you increase the, the limit. Honestly, I believe there should be no limit mm-hmm. to begin with. There should be no limit. But, yeah. but uh, also you need to streamline the process. Now, you know, you're going to have a big limit, but then in between the licensing, the world is that you are, well, no one really comes in. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it, it like, like not doing the thing. So energy is a big issue. So where you need, obviously, level the playing field and open it for private sector participation, mm-hmm. especially in the generation part, at least in the early stages. Um, then ESCOM needs to become a more efficient um, company. They, and that means... They need to improve the procurement process, mm-hmm. and they need to be really operationally really reduce cost across the board. They also need to improve the collection. That there's a significant amount of arrears that ESCOM doesn't get paid. Yeah. Some of them come from the municipalities. Yeah. They, some of them from buckets on the population that consume energy, but they don't pay the energy. Mm-hmm. So all this needs to be addressed. Yes. When the energy is one big area. Second big area also related to public enterprise. I want to say a lot in South Africa kind of links back to it, mm-hmm. is infrastructure bottlenecks. Um, and here in particular all the all the network industry, the the the, the logistic elements, mm-hmm. which is railways, ports and highways. Okay. But in particular ports and railways and ports are extremely important. And and here is another public enterprise which is Transnet. Um, um, basically, with what happened with infrastructure bottlenecks, and this is very interesting. For example, um, we've been I talked to people in the mining sector, and basically, I think mining companies believe and the sector believe they, they could be exporting a few dollars, a few billion dollars more per year mm-hmm. with the adequate infrastructure. Yeah. But 
know, it is with the existing mind, with the existing capacity. Mm-hmm. They could be exporting more than what they do, actually. But they have difficulties getting trains to bring the minerals to the port, and if you make it to the port, you have a problem putting on the, on, the, on the ship. So it's something interesting, you know, South Africa has benefited significantly since the late 2020s, uh, late 2020, um, especially since the beginning of this year with Russia's invasion in, of Ukraine that has increased commodity prices quite significantly. Mm-hmm. But the bulk of the benefit for South Africa has been pure price. Politico has been pure price and exporting more in quantities, which was the, the natural response. But these bottlenecks do not allow the country to fully benefit yeah. from this. So the, these bottlenecks need to be addressed. And again, a lot of it has to do with public, with the private sector participation in the ports, but also on the railways. Allow, for example, private, open the existing infrastructure, for example, on the rail system, for the private trains to run on them. So you see, you have probably, mm-hmm. if you as transnet are having problems running your trains, and you have the, don't have the resources, and you where you cannot invest or whatever the reason, well, Create the conditions for the private, someone private to put a train yeah. on the tracks and let it yes, and let it run. Yes, yes. Yeah. So this is important. So third area, which finally seems to be getting, it has taken a decade, but nonetheless, hopefully, we we'll get there, is telecommunications. Okay. Yeah. You see, telecommunications uh, was the auction of the spectrum mm-hmm. that took place earlier this year, but it's been in the making for ten years. Yeah. Um, on the spectrum. Um, Let's hope this managed to materialize. Not only because the importance of the spectrum is not only the investment in the telecom sector, mm-hmm. towers and whatever you need to do for this thing, but it's also the industries that you attract. Okay. You see, in the 21st century, industries are very intensive in telecommunications. Yes, yes, yes. So, so you don't have adequate telecommunication, or your data transmission is very expensive, as it is in South Africa. Mm-hmm you're putting your industry at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And I used to make this analogy, and I think it's a, I don't like medical analogies, but jobs because they're risky. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but this one I think is where, I mean, I think in the case of South Africa, everyone sees, you know, I think the, the energy security issue is like, it's like a cancer. It, you know, every load shedding episode is like one more, two more that you can feel and it's painful and you see it and it grows and it's, you know, it, it, yeah. It's very obvious, and you know you're kind of dying of it. Because you can see the impact right mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. But mm, I say the the telecommunications sector is more like cholesterol mm-hmm. because it kills you silently. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by mean by that is, you see, if, if a company is looking to establish themselves in a country, let's say in an emerging market, they compare several things. And let's say a company look at South Africa, but this telecommunication sector is not very good and it's very expensive. So let's open the factory in Malaysia or in Brazil or in Mexico or in Egypt. Yeah. But no one, will, no one will announce I'm not going to South Africa. They simply don't go. So you see, it's like cholesterol. You don't yeah. see it. It's not painful. It's not obvious. But it's sad. You're, you're, you are going down and down because people, your companies are not coming and settle. Yeah. So, so, but hopefully, finally, the spectrum auction took place. Let's hope the investment will start a materializing in the sector. Let's hope data, the cost of data transmission goes down, yeah. and let's say this certainly improve that competitiveness of the economy. Yeah. Uh, now, be, um, outside of public enterprise, I'm going to talk about public enterprise for the whole day. Uh, <laughs> I have a whole podcast on that. But then wow. the other one is has to do with the regulatory burden on the system. Mm-hmm and leveling the playing field. 
and fostering competition. Um, you see, just one example of regulatory burden is the huge amount of mining licenses that are stuck there for years and years, and these issues do not get resolved. This obviously does not help the development of that attracting investment to the site. Not only they have the infrastructure issues already in place, but on top of that, getting a license is almost impossible. So this needs to be looked at. But more importantly, and this is something I want to emphasize, sometimes the regulatory burden is so heavy, as it is in South Africa, that it goes in detriment of competition and opening the field for everyone, especially for small and medium enterprises. And there's something we know from everywhere in the world. Now, big, big corporations are very good, are very important. They generate a lot of output, they generate a lot of revenue, and they pay a lot of taxes. And they are very important and they're key for the development of them. However, jobs are created by small and medium enterprises. Mm -hmm. You see, what really generates jobs, what is intensive in, in, in hiring people, is small and medium enterprises. Mm -hmm. And you have in South Africa with unemployment hovering around 35%, which is absolutely staggering. Um, I we believe something very important is really to, to create conditions for the small and medium enterprises to flourish. And this passes through addressing a lot of the regulatory burden that exists in the system. Yeah. So that was on, on the product market. Now more quickly more did I mention the labor market? Yes, yes. I think on the labor market there are a number of issues that need to be addressed. For me the most fundamental one, and you tell me about all the big things that you need to address. Mm -hmm. Um of course, you know, the energy, all those things like energy and these other things are important. But what I believe is more fundamental is education. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really grows over the medium term, fundamentally hinges on having an educated population. And you want people to find jobs. You want people to have well-remunerated jobs. You need to educate the population. Mm -hmm. And the, I'm not an expert on education but I have talked to people who know about education issues. Yes. And, and the situation in South Africa is quite dramatic. Yeah. Maybe not so much in the big cities, but when you go to rural areas, I mean, the quality of education is, is, is very important. So I think South Africa has gone a very long way since 1994 in improving, increasing access to education. Now, nowadays, access is almost universal. I mean, every South African child can go to a school. Yeah. But what has been overlooked is the quality of education. Mm -hmm. So it's not just putting a child in a classroom. It's what you feed and teach the, the, the child to mm -hmm. make this person, to, for this person, this child to eventually find its place in the labor market. Yeah. So I think education is one that really deserves very close attention. Yeah. Um, the second one is also, there are several issues, but the other one is related to the collective bargaining system. Mm -hmm. Uh, collective bargaining is very important, so let's not misunderstand this or anything. I think that uh, is fundamental for worker rights and all these things. But the system cannot be, cannot go against hiring, I mean, creating employment. Uh, the system in South Africa, which is highly centralized at the industry level, with very little firm level flexibility. Mm -hmm. This is very similar to the system that you find in Southern Europe. And not surprisingly, those are the current countries in Europe with the highest levels of unemployment. Um, because there's very little flexibility. And I go back to this, for, for example, of small and medium enterprises. Yeah. You, let's say you go to the industry, and uh, let's say you, you, you close a deal with the big supermarkets, to make, give an example, 
well, the, the kind of benefits that the big supermarket chains can agree to pay to their workers are simply unaffordable for someone with a little shop at the corner. Mm -hmm. But here, but here in Africa, the whole thing, the whole thing applies to everyone. Mm -hmm. So you know, this is detrimental for the development of these smaller businesses mm -hmm. because if you need to honor benefits at that level, well, it just become not affordable for the, for, for small and medium enterprises. Yeah, yeah. So the collective bargaining system. I think need to be looked at, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying need to be eliminated because I think it's a very fundamental piece of the labor market, but need to be looked at. Yeah. And that thing. Uh, another issue which I, I think is important is the the enforcement, the enforcement of labor legislation and these things. It, it tends to be very expensive and take a long time. Mm -hmm. um, again, of course, you need justice in the labor market like everywhere else. But the system cannot be so expensive and cumbersome that you know if you hire someone is such a problem you need to deal with that that you better not 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 hire people. Mm -hmm. So the so I believe these are the kind of things that need to be looked at to make the system more attractive for private investment to come mm -hmm. uh, to come in. So I mean, I mean, kind of rounding up. I basically that I think the, the issues in South Africa related to the labor products market and labor market. On the products market is the large footprint of state-owned enterprises, in particular ESCOM because of energy security, and Transnet because of infrastructure bottlenecks. There's also important a regulatory system that needs to be looked at, and in particular to try to make it more friendly for small and medium enterprises to flourish. Yeah, yeah. And on the labor market, uh, emphasize the importance of education, mm. the importance to look at the collective bargaining system and the cost of enforcing labor legislation. Mm -hmm. In a way, the point is try to create a system in which more employment is generated, because that's the only way you will be able to uh, advance in addressing the poverty and inequality issues that you have in South Africa. Yeah, definitely, I think. And let me apologize before bringing you back to this point, because you did say you're not an expert in education. But as we were talking about education, I thought of it, we're also staying away from uh, medical analogies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we also thought of it as um, a slow killer, still, you know. And I just wanted to ask, um, I know a lot of people have different views about this, and it's what sort of education, what sort of, you know, knowledge should be, you know, um, promoted for kids, children in school uh, at every level. So there's been this view that it's important to ensure that the education, the things that children are taught in classrooms are technology-based. So um, I wouldn't say it's to prepare them for the jobs of the future, because, I mean, it's happening today. Um, a lot of the, the knowledge that's out there um, around technology and systems linked to technology are relevant today. Um, and then on the other hand, you have people who say that South Africa is not at a point right now where we can afford to focus on that. So let's maybe focus on, I don't know, more labor-intensive um you know, education, um, you know, practical things. So I don't know, um, there's, there's that, that toss-up, that, that differing, um, differing views on, on, on that topic. So I just wanted to, to get your views on that. Uh, do you think that South Africa right now, where education is concerned, is at a point where we can afford to uh, invest more on, you know, technology-based uh, education, um, knowledge systems, and so forth? Yeah, I I really don't have the qualifications to have a very informed opinion about this thing, but I, I just kind of a personal view. I think you need to balance two things. Mm -hmm. In some instances, 
but the level of education is so so poor then you need to first start bringing these groups of the population up in the system you see, I cannot show up with a supercomputer to someone who cannot read and write mm -hmm. you see there's a, someone illiterate will not know to what to do with the computer I may spend thousands of dollars in a computer but this computer what the person done with that so, mm -hmm. so at some point you really need to invest in in bringing everyone certain groups up take up to speed yes. on the basics yeah. um, and sometimes you also need to uh, address what is the return of every round you invest in one type of education or the other of course you already have like the basics covered and everyone reads and writes and everyone can pass a basic math test and those things well you, it makes sense to increase mm -hmm. the money into the more technological thing because it makes sense but if, if you don't have that base covered you're giving money only to the very lucky few ones who do have that so I think from a social point of view you need to value to both I mean I don't, it, the world is not black or white that you only do mm -hmm. one or you do the other yeah, yeah. there's a lot of nuances in between yeah. but I believe um, I believe really from a social point of view when you have a large deficiency of basic skills you really need to direct a significant amount of resources to that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's even from a pure social fairness point of view. Yeah. So you try to bring these people up. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you put only money into the high tech, you know, and it's just a very you know, small segment of the population that are benefiting from that. Yeah. And they should, you know, they should benefit, but it's a matter of how you balance this. Of course, of course. Balance, balance is very important. Um, so to bring you back to the um, issue of energy rights, so there's been a lot of talk around, you know, ensuring a just energy transition and South Africa um, also committing itself to you know, decarbonization. I know that we had COP26, um, a lot has been invested in ensuring that um, countries such, such as South Africa, countries across the world um, are able to make that just uh, transition. But also linked, um, and this is a similar situation to the education challenge that I brought uh, uh, to your attention is that um, a lot of people have said that it's important to consider South Africa's situation. So there is a global view and there's a need to localize, you know, um, whatever the global view is, um, looking more specifically to the current challenges that South Africa faces. So um, another point that's been raised linked to this is that you have, for instance, core uh, communities. So communities who um, are heavily dependent on coal operations. So how do you deal with that? So there's a, there's a need for a just, a just uh, transition. So there is a need. But how do you balance that um, with the existence um, of coal communities, if you may? And how do you ensure that a just, a just transition um, also ensures that we deal with um, challenges of um, unemployment, with challenges of inequality, challenges that South Africa uniquely faces? Now, well, this is um, South Africa in that area of climate change. It's a very interesting case um, because South Africa is both culprit and a victim. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a culprit because you are one of, one of the most, one of the largest polluters in the world. Mm -hmm. You're in the top 20. Yeah. And this basically the reason for that is because of your heavy reliance on coal yeah. for energy generation. So yeah. you're among the largest polluters in the world. It's, 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 uh, <laughs> at the same time, you are the victims. Mm -hmm. You, I mean, is being evident. Uh, you can see a number of cases, but just to point a few, you know, you had four years ago when 
a city like Cape Town was probably the first city in the world to run out of water. Mm-hmm. You may remember four years ago with the drops. Yeah. Um, or at the same time, you had a few months back the flooding in Kuzo Natal. Yes. And all these are climate change, yeah. the impact on climate change. So, so you're not only that you kind of contribute to create the problem, but you are also suffer the consequences yeah. of the problem. So, so you are in a particular, particularly interesting country in that respect, because you obviously have important interest, and it's certainly your own interest both to have a transition to address the element of how you contribute to that, but also on mitigation. Because you are also affected by the climate change, yeah. so so this, 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 that obviously makes South Africa a really a, an interesting case when you talk about the climate change. And but I'm focusing on the transition. Um, this will require a lot of resources, but I think what is very important is to have very clear idea that being successful in doing the energy transition hinges in getting the private sector in. I'm just going to give you a few numbers, but not not to take in with that full value. But the cost of the energy transition in South Africa, there are numbers all over the place. But there was one in a, one of the presidential commission or one of these reports, which put the, the value of the transition for South Africa over the next 10 years, whatever it is, at 2 trillion rands. Uh, that's about $125 billion. More recently, I saw an estimate of $250 billion. So that's why I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not super focused on this number because there are different types of estimates, but it's a huge number. Yeah. Now, this amount of money, I know that you obtained the last COP, South Africa obtained a lot of resources mm-hmm. because you were very skilled, you were the first one to do it, and you got $8.5 billion. So, okay. I mean, and now as other countries will come in in the for next COPs, you get Indonesia and other countries who are like queuing with their energy transition plans. So they will want to start getting resources. So there, there's no money in the world, I mean, external money to South Africa will pay for the whole energy transition. So you say you have 125, okay, you got 8.5 from the COP. Then you look at the public finances, as we said before, South Africa has a very high level of public debt. So you need to find these extra resources on top of that to do the climate change. I'm sure you will be able to find some resources. Mm-hmm. But the bulk of all this transition will necessarily need to be private sector investment. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so it's very important yes. to have a bit that side of the picture because yeah. the world is not going to bring $125 billion mm-hmm. and make let alone $250 to South Africa to do it. Yeah. Uh, the, the government does not have that kind of money to pay for itself. No. You, it, so it's absolutely fundamental, in my view, not to lose sight that all the issues we were discussing before that have been holding back private investment in South Africa need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, your success in the energy transition is absolutely hinges on addressing those issues because if you don't address them, you don't have the private investment and if you don't have the private investment, you're not going to succeed yeah. because it's an extremely costly process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the element that you mentioned about the end, the just element of that, I mean, and I think the problem with just energy transition discussion everywhere is how do you define just? I mean, you can define justice in many, many ways. But um, uh, but focusing on the communities and the people who will be affected by the energy transition. 
um, I think when you go to people, you can broadly speak, you know, categorize. Of course, I get this a continuum of people, but you can broadly speak. Um, only when you talk about the, the younger people. Mm-hmm. Well, these people, what you need to do is, going back to the issue of education, mm-hmm. you need to retrain them, you need to retool them, you need them so that they can either move to a different industry or move their skills from this kind of coal mining or what they're making an example can be other they're focused on this thing to how they can be part of that clean energy industry yeah. so you have to retool them this is a for, for the younger people obviously you have the older people you have a, an old person who has been working a coal mine for the last 35 years is probably not in very good health to begin with at that point because it has had such a harsh life uh, not only that at a certain age it's much more difficult to retool yourself mm-hmm. So you need to address, you need to do a little of a, as a targeted kind of thing, but certainly you need to be mindful of the impact of the thing on communities and on people. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think uh, yeah, something that is important is, you know, the energy production, if successful and efficiently done, will probably likely shift geographically. You see, traditionally, I mean, the energy in, in South Africa come from because it relies on coal. You know, it's generally produced close to where the coal mines are. Okay. So Pumalanga, the first state, these areas they're close to where the coal mines are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand for the new energies. I mean, especially go to solar and this kind of things. That may not be the best part to produce. The best part is the northern gate. So that's what some be. So this in, I mean, you you may try to get solar in a place that is low with clouds, and, but you will not be as efficient and produce as much as you move to the place that is sunny all, mm-hmm. all the time. So I think at some point it may also involve facilitating people's relocation. Yeah. Because you know you you need to move around where the where the industries are. But not only people can more focus on the energy industry, but let's say some of the people you, you they say these younger people I was mentioning before, that they move from coal miners and now they move to the services sector. Well, well, they, then you may go around Kruger Park where you have a lot of these kind of lodges and those things, but you may have a lot of more activity, say, in the Western Cape. Mm-hmm. So some of these people may need to move to the Western Cape. Yeah. Because they get skills, or they may move to a particular industry that you find more in Houting. So they may need to relocate to Houting. Because as you change your skills, you need to change the opportunities. Mm-hmm. You can try to bring opportunities to, to the area, but they will need to be identified. Yeah. Um, but, I, but the basic point is, it's very important to support these people who are being affected, these communities that are being affected. The support to specific individuals need to be targeted to their specific circumstances. Again, especially, for example, age-related. It's yeah. very different. Someone who's 20 years old, someone who's 55 or 60 years old. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, help this person? Yes. But also facilitate that these people may need to, you may need to see some relocation. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, this, the, the, all this involves cost. And again, going back to the issue of money, this is out of the big, you know, package of resources that you need for, for the just energy transition, many of this compensation or these the policies for those affected are very are very carried out by the government. So then a lot of the 
industry element, the production element. You leave it to the private sector. They're not good at this, doing this compensation. This is more a public policy issue. Yeah. So the, the small amount of resources that are available for the government because of their limited fiscal space should be used for more these policy elements rather than be directed to producing themselves. Yeah. So, so again, I think it's a fascinating topic. But I guess South Africa, you're a culprit and a victim. So you're you're really interested in doing both things. Yeah. And uh, the thing is, how you how do you achieve this objective? It's important to really understand that you need an important private sector participation. You need to address the issues who are being holding back private investment in South Africa. Yeah. But also, you need you will need active policies to compensate these individuals and communities yeah. who are most directly affected. Definitely. Yeah, and I guess a deeper thinking of who benefits, who loses, how we sort of balance those out to make sure that, you know, everyone overall benefits from, from yeah. the transition. Um, and I think, taking from our discussion so far, um, the main issue, well, let me not say the main issue, but a recurring theme is a need um you know, to implement what, what's been set out, right? Um, I think we said this at the beginning as well, um, referring to the implementation curves. And I mean, in my opinion, that's obviously a function of leadership, a function of governance. Um, so I know that the IMF as well has said that it's important for government to ensure that it ensures action, you know? So you said that you're going to do these things, you have these uh, beautiful plans, as you had said, beautiful on paper, but that doesn't really help if they're just beautiful on paper, they need to be implemented, we need to see them in action. Um, so there's obviously been a challenge and the IMF has been vocal about that, just calling government to ensure that it implements whatever plans that they have set. Um, so I want to bring your attention back to that, um, the implementation curves, and I mean, it's quite relevant. I know you've also um, spoken about the State Capture Commission, all the reports are out, a lot of talk around that and the overall challenge of corruption and how um, pervasive corruption is, especially when we think of you know, economic growth, sustainability, um, and so forth, right? So I want to get your view around those uh, linkages. So linkages between economic growth and corruption, um, how pervasive, you know, um, a function of that is on the other. and what can be done by the country to ensure, I mean, in your view, um, it's quite a big challenge. <laughs> in your view, what can be done to, to sort of overcome, um, you know, the challenges that have arisen um, with the State Capture Commission and the reports? Yeah, but before we get specific into the governance, going back to the issue of implementation, and the we were talking about the energy transition and the resources you can get from the international community and. I think it's a very important issue to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. To some extent, not to a large extent, South Africa is competing in the world with other countries who, are, who need to go through the same energy transition mm -hmm. and who are fighting for the international resources available. You now, we have all these advanced economies putting resources to assist you know, the emerging markets or developing economies to, uh, to address the challenge of energy transition. But it will be very important that you show results. Mm -hmm. Because if you get them now X amount of money and tomorrow the other country gets the amount of money, and in three, four years, they see the other countries really implementing things and doing things and moving forward, and you really have not done much, where do you think they're going to put the next batch of resources? 
into those who are delivering. So, so, so this energy transition, you're really competing for resources with other economies, energy markets and developing economies. So it's very important to do, to implement and deliver on the commitments and show results. Yeah. Because I think that that's a lot. Now going to the governance and corruption question. Well, you know, the evidence, well, first of all, there's no way to measure corruption directly. Mm -hmm. Now, so usually what you, people use for this is perception of corruption. And there are a number of indices and indicators by different institutions in Europe or the US for all the countries in the world. On the level of perception of corruption. And South Africa doesn't rank very well to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, but using that as an indication, suppose this assume the perception is very close to the level of corruption. If you look at the studies, there's always a very clear negative relation between the um, corruption or the perception of corruption and economic performance, mm -hmm. including growth. So in countries that perception is of corruption is higher, they tend to grow lower. Mm -hmm. Once you control for other issues that affect growth. So, so that's it, that, that's something that is very clear. No, I think that there's very little debate about that. So it, it is important really to, to address, I mean, uh, issues related to corruption, they, because they deviate resources out from their best uses. And besides the issue of economic efficiency and just growth, there's, also, uh, there's a social issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, this money or these resources, you are not taking them from you're taking them away from other people. Yeah. So you see, and usually those other people are really the neediest. Yeah. Okay, going back to what we were discussing before, those are usually less organized. Mm -hmm. So this is this is all this is, there's an issue not only of economic efficiency, there's also an issue of social justice yeah. in addressing corruption. Um now I think South Africa went through what can be called almost a traumatic episode of with this in the context of the state capture episode, mm. um, which was not just corruption, but it was kind of a systemic way of undermining institutions and for the private benefit of a few. Yeah. Um, and this caused a lot of damage, um, not only because the money was deviated, but the damage to institutions. Um, our sense is that South Africa has done a lot over the last three years to kind of repair three, four years to repair this damage. Yeah. Uh, you see in some of the institutions that were most affected by the state capture episode, where the efforts are ongoing, I don't think any of them is back to how they were before mm -hmm. the state capture, but they have come a long way in trying to repair the damage. Um, and you had a number of um, the commissions looking at the specific institutions and what needed to be done and they came with recommendations on how to replace the leadership in these institutions yes. and a lot of that has been implemented. No, the the real thing is the Zondo Commission report, mm -hmm. which I mean has been um, you know delivering five volumes. Uh, the last one just a few weeks ago. I think absolutely it's very important, you know, to 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 follow the recommendations in the report, and also you know for for the justice system to take its course. That's uh, that's important. Um, 
how is it going to be done exactly? Uh, I don't know. I understand that that the president has committed to announce by October, I believe. Mm. What is the plan to address all these recommendations? So, uh, I mean, I think we'll need to wait and, and see what those plans are. And again, going back to the show, to what extent they're implemented. Mm. Something very, 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 very important. Um, I know you've touched on this in your response, but it's just zooming into the Sura Ramaphosa administration in particular. Um, I think our experience as a country, um, you know, of the functioning of different departments, the functioning mm -hmm. of, of different institutions, sort of differs with each and every president, right? Mm -hmm. Each and every administration, if I may. So, um, and I know that with the Zuma administration, there was a certain level, not just with the, I'm not talking about the IMF in specific, in particular, but, you know, the overall sense is that, you know, not, not much is being done to, to, to implement certain plans, not much is being done to um, address instances of corruption. So there's not a strong sense of confidence in that administration. And I know that when President Cyril Ramaphosa came into the picture, there, is, you know, there was this... Um, overall sense of optimism um, in that this guy's going to come in, he's going to, you know, address instances of corruption, um, get, you know, institutions running again after a period of just a lack of confidence and trust in government um, for, you know, quite a long time. So I think uh, from your view and from the IMF's view, um, what is your level of confidence in the current administration sort of tackling these issues uh, at the speed at which, you know, is needed, um, taking into account where we are as a country economically and how our economic situation and how fast and effectively we're able to uh, recover is obviously linked to governance, it's linked, it's linked to leadership. So, I mean, what's your level of, of confidence yeah, in the current administration, just doing what it must to get the country where it should be. Now, well, first of all, I think the, these are processes um, that you need to have a little bit of hindsight mm -hmm. to eventually, you know, have a, a proper view. Mm -hmm. These are very complex, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't think this, this is something that you can comment blow by blow, day by day, week by week, what was done and what wasn't done. I yeah. mean, um, it, these are not only legal issues, mm -hmm. you know, the, the issues with the administration of justice and all these things, which can be very complex. But there are also political processes, you know, and it's not a, uh, politically you can go slash and burn and do and solve, and in a week you brought all the issues. So I think that it's way too soon to come with uh, an assessment. Yeah. I mean, what I was saying before, I mean, something that we have seen during this presidency is significant action in trying to repair the damage that was caused to some of the key institutions, like the SARS, mm -hmm. like the prosecution authority, some of, some of the public enterprises. So, so we have seen steps in the right direction. Um, how effective they will be after, after all to address the damage I think it's way too soon to say. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think we have indications that there's the willingness to, to do these things. Um, uh, but it's hard to say, I mean, is confidence going to work out or not? I mean, I think it's way too soon. I mm -hmm. think that, and I don't think it is a, a, it's appropriate to, to, to have a judgment on these things uh, in the middle. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I mean, we've covered everything, but a final question for me, and I guess to sum up everything, I know if you, you've more or less answered the question, but um, that's the question of what should be done. You know, looking into the future, your own parting shots, if I may. Um, you know, looking at our economic situation and every other situation that's linked to that. What should be done in the main, according to you? Well, I think, of course, I, mean, I just cut out the, the, the policies themselves. No. Is that we said before from addressing energy security, addressing infrastructure bottlenecks, and environment for small and improving the environment for small and medium enterprises, addressing some of the issues in the labor market, especially in education. I think that not gonna have big impact in the short term, but over the in, in the mid mid term, medium term is gonna have a strong impact. Uh, addressing governance and corruption. I mean I think the thing that should be done, the thing in specific area called policy themselves. Yeah. But more broadly speaking, I think that in, uh, for all these things to happen, uh, what I think is absolutely fundamental, and you can see it anywhere in the world, uh, you need to build a society-wide and political consensus mm -hmm. on the way forward and the way to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, to some extent, some, sometimes when you face big challenges at some point, you really need to have a, a vision to, and you know, not on one party or the other, but it's more across the society. I mean, so you do that you, because you, you need everyone to be uh, pulling in the same direction mm -hmm. rather than people trying to pull in different directions okay. and, and then the cart doesn't move. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's probably, you know, it's a specific point that we discussed. I, I think it's, it, this is very important to, mm -hmm. for, for the system. I don't want to call a specific person or group or whatever, not, not about that. I think for the system to come together and coalesce yeah. around an, our objective and a plan and, and all of you pull in the same direction. Yeah. Oh, okay. This was a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Frontline Conversations. Uh, please do tune in for some other exciting conversations we're going to have in the future. Um, I don't know, I don't know, I'd love to have Mr. Adia back to discuss uh, further issues linked to the economy. I feel like this discussion, there are certain issues that were left hanging, but you know what, um, leave, leave your comments down below, let us know if you'd like to have him back, we'd love to, but we'll discuss that on the sidelines. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for tuning in, um, and continue following, following us on our social media platforms. Um, thank you, and goodbye. To keep up to date with public policy and current affairs, follow us on our social media platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn as Frontline Africa Advisory, Twitter at FAA underscore advisory, Facebook, Frontline Africa Advisory, YouTube, Frontline Conversations, and our website, www.frontlineafrica.co.za. You don't